Well, Brent is gay, and Kaylin's gay, and Clark is gay, and Ryan's gay, and Adam's gay. It's Homo Superior. We're doing an extra special issue this week. Uh, by the way, hello, my name is Brent. And I'm Kalen. And today we're discussing the seminal graphic novel uh, written by Alan Moore and drawn by Dave Gibbons, Watchmen, in honor of the upcoming HBO series by Damon Lindelof, uh, uh, who's creating a series of the same name, and starring Regina King, Jeremy Irons, Gene Smart, and Don Johnson. Yeah, that's going to come out on Sunday, October 20th, which is... Tomorrow, also, which is also my birthday, so uh, what a great birthday gift for yes, me! Yes, we should everyone wish Kalen a happy birthday. He uh, turns eighty-two. Uh, you're not far off, actually. Um, so, just a quick synopsis of Watchmen: The Graphic Novel. First of all, spoilers for the graphic novel. If you haven't read it by now, it came out in 1886. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, kill yourself because if you haven't read it yet, you're not a real comics fan. But we'll just do a quick synopsis. It's set in an alternate world where uh, superheroes are real. Watchmen begins with a murder mystery. Who killed the comedian, who is an amoral anti-hero who has ties to all of the main characters? Throughout the series, we learn that he's the casualty in a, of an elaborate plot, against spoilers, by Ozymandias, a former crime fighter turned entrepreneur and philanthropist. And he's also uh, known as the smartest man uh, on, on, on Earth. And he's doing this to save the world from itself. The series, groundbreaking when it first was published in 1986, as Brent mentioned, asks but doesn't neatly answer key philosophical questions about unchecked power and whether the un- ends justify the means. So um, we've written, we've read this multiple times. Yeah. Brent, talk to me about the first time you read this. Uh, what was the experience and what did you think? I mean, this actually might be my first introduction into comics as an adult. Adult, because I had read, you know, Spider Man as a kid, but the same issue over and over again. Right? Basically, yeah, yeah, it was like two issues, um, and I really liked it. And then I had a, some class on literature that had a few comics as a part of the course, one by Scott McCloud, um, Understanding Comics. Yeah, yeah, that one. <clears throat> so one of my friends had Watchmen. He said it was amazing. He really recommended it. I started reading it, got completely absorbed into it. And then the next thing that got recommended to me was uh, Miracle Man, <laughs> <laughs> which you was only available to read online, and you'd have to like zoom in and scroll through each page on a screen. But Watchmen, because I had an actual physical copy, yeah, I flew through it, was absolutely obsessed with it, as any young white American male is. <laughs> um, so I. Uh, I have a diff- diff- couple of different um, uh, memories of Watchmen. Uh, when I was pretty young, like 10, 11, 12, I remember being in a bookstore in the mall, like a Walden Books or B. Dalton's, and when they would sell... What the fuck are those bookstores? Yeah, Walden... <laughs> man, uh, if, you, if you watch the third season of Stranger Things and when they're in the mall, you see a Walden Books. It's in there. Uh, oh, man. That is my me- that's my memory. It's where I first started buying comic books uh, and buy- like bu- even getting graphic novels, but... Um, McNeary and Sally's bookstore. All books are a nickel. <laughs> <laughs> when uh, my parents wouldn't always buy me the books, and like you know, Watchmen at the time, I I think you know it was like maybe fifteen dollars for the graphic novel. Uh, I just remember sitting and reading part of it while my mom went shopping at Lord and Taylor, or like Neiman Marcus or something, and uh, I just like read parts of it and I didn't absorb everything. I just knew it was really like, oh, this is a different kind of comic. It's super adult. 
fast forward to high school, my senior year of high school, and I finally was buying more mature comics. Um, I wanted to try to get a full collection of Miracle Man, uh, get all of V for Vendetta. And then finally, I was like, I need to buy, I need to read Watchmen properly. So I remember going to this comic store around my birthday uh, and uh, really wanting the trade paperback. Now, this is before uh, comic companies uh, did trade paperbacks of everything. Watchmen was a series that was, um, and we'll get into it in a second, uh, about why Alan Moore is really pissed off at DC Comics, was usually, it usually remained in print yeah. as a trade paperback ever since the late 80s. Um, but for some reason, that comic store, which is a really good comic store in Houston at the time, didn't have it that graphic novel. So they had all 12 issues. So I, I was able to get all 12 issues of the original run of Watchmen, like single single issues for like a dollar fifty a pop. Uh, so the same price as I would. That's very bizarre. Yeah. So I I read it like like issue by issue, um, and was completely completely just blown but, away. But by you it. were well into comics love by that point. Oh, for sure. And so for for you reading this, which obviously is. I think it's it's a very it's satirical. It's not a parody. It really has a lot of disdain for the nature of superheroes. It does. For you, did you feel like it had that same weight at the time or was that something that you learned you kind of grew into understanding later? Um I think by the time I read it completely, I knew that like that was what was going to be the it was a deconstruction because I'd read enough analyses of Watchmen through like Wizard comic Wizard magazine or even like back when the internet was like pretty nascent at the time of all these like Usenet sites of of analyzing Watchmen, I knew it was uh, a deconstruction of the superhero genre. What's interesting to me is, you know, for like you and for a lot of people, Watchmen is the first foray into like adult graphic novels. Yeah. Um, but for some other people, they're like, "What is this? I feel like I'm coming in media res." Uh, I don't understand who all these like superheroes are. I only want to read Sandman or I want to read these ad- or Mouse or these adult comics. And so I wonder if it's better if you're like a superhero fan reading it and then growing up with it or coming into it brand new. I mean, so there's two interesting things about this historically. Um, one is that part of this kind of trajectory f- for the book is about how everyone kind of looked down on comics. They always thought like this was at a point when maybe a comic would get a mention in a newspaper article, but everyone thought of it as something that's exclusively for children. No, no adult would reasonably want to consume this. Right. So at its inception, it was already a a story about like, uh, how do we make this seem like a serious medium? On the other side of it was with the characters that you would want to know. I can't remember the name of the 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 editor who was helping produce it. Len Wine. Len, I think was it Len Wine? Not the editor of the actual issue. The the actual directing editor of oh uh, Paul Levitz. I think it might have been Paul Levitz, but yeah. he basically convinced Alan Moore. Look, we know you know what the trajectory of these characters are going to be. Yeah. So. We don't want you to use any of DC's properties. We want you to create your own because they're not going to have any life after this. Right. And so eventually Alan Moore agreed to that. But it's interesting that part of the conceit is you want to tell a really good story. We want you to be able to tell that story. But you're going to have to create characters no one wants to see ever again or has ever heard of before. Well, they're all based on existing characters. 
So in the 80s, and even before that, DC went around buying um, various defunct companies. So there was a company that was publishing comics in the 60s called Charlton Comics. Yeah. So they created characters like The Question, Blue Beetle, Peacemaker, Nightshade, um, Peter Cannon, Thunderbolt. Now, these characters are better known in Watchmen. The Question is Rorschach. Um... Captain Adam is Dr. Manhattan, Blue oh. Beetle is Night Owl, Nightshade is Sil- Silk Spectre, um, and Peacemaker is the Comedian. So these are existing characters uh, in DC. Peter Cannon Thunderbolt is not. Uh, there's some rights issues there. but um, uh, but um, So uh, he basically aped them enough. He did. He basically took the serial numbers off and like created brand new characters. Were they, were they actually the same character, or was it like... Oh, this looks like that character, and then I'm gonna, you know, make a grittier, you know, more grounded version of what their mentality is. Um, the core was pretty much there. So, like, the question was a character created by Steve Ditko, uh, the co-creator of Spider-Man. Yeah, Steve Ditko is a famous libertarian. So, the question is a, was an objectivist hero at the time, right? And, and so, um, Rorschach uh, is that is the grounds for for Rorschach. Uh, how he sees uh, the world in such black and white, you know, um, which is which is really coincidental because you know that's what a Rorschach test is. Um, but uh, it is um, Alan Moore was convinced to to use create new characters, mostly because Paul Levitz and the other like brass at DC Comics didn't want such an adult tale or mature tale to sully these characters that were going to be used later on right. in like you know more kid friendly comics. The other thing that's kind of shitty that DC did uh, is that the rights of Watchmen was supposed to revert back to Alan Moore once the book went out of print. But DC, even though they didn't, this was a time where they didn't put everything in trade paperback or graphic novel form after it came out in its its issue it, its issue form. Um, you know, sometimes it was just you could never find it again. But Watchmen was so successful that they kept it in perpetuity. Of, as a graphic novel. So the rights never reverted to Alan Moore. So Alan Moore, like his dis- he promised that he would never work with DC Comics again. What a loss. Uh, huge loss. Um, and so when Neil Gaiman, you know, did Sandman, uh, he basically uh, made a deal with, with DC. It's like, either I get permission for you to use these characters or write them myself. And if you do that, then I will continue working with you. And if you don't, you can fuck off. And DC did not make the same mistake with uh, Neil Gaiman. So real quick, let's ask, uh, say, uh, Ryan, what was your first introduction to this book? Uh, I'm Ryan Krulls. I don't know what I'm doing. Sorry, I had to do it. Yeah, that was pretty accurate. Yeah. Uh, what do you think was, okay, so let's go to our normal, <laughs> our normal way of reviewing stuff. What's, what makes this the best? Um, it is the seminal deconstruction of the superhero genre, as far as I'm concerned. Um, everything from the writing to the art. The art we don't, we haven't talked about it very much, but it is it is deceptively complex. Um, for for uh, nine panel pages, yeah, constantly throughout the entire book, it feels pretty uh, creative and expressive. Uh, so much so that um, when I was in college, uh, I gave a really close friend of mine who was into comics as well, uh, Watchmen as a birthday gift. Um, 
and he hated it because of the art. He hated it for a Raleigh reason, but he said the art just was like really basic and simple. Uh, and he preferred like, you know, more of like the image artists like Jim Lee and Rob Layfield and all those kinds of artists. Like he he hated like how uh, mundane and simple it looked. And when I say it's deceptively simple, um, uh, it is it's it's amazing what Gibbons was able to do. There are essays about how the art in this is so brilliant because if you actually look across the if you split the book in half and look at so many of the pages, you actually see that they're mirrors of one another. Absolutely. The action in one is repeating the action in the other or there is this kind of like checker pattern of the stuff that's happening on the corners and the center is mirroring stuff that happens on the corners and center of another page. So issue six is actually like that. That's the Rorschach issue. It's right. after he's uh, captured and he's in prison and he's being interviewed by the psych- the psychologist. And so that is the symmetrical issue. Yeah. The other thing I love about it is how the covers, uh, and we spent one Homo Superior talking about like cover treatments of comics, how amazing it is where... Uh, you just have Watchmen like as one bar on that's a vertical bar, so the the letters are written from bottom to the top, and then the the cover is really goes into what the first panel of the comic is. So it's like superimposed. Like there's an issue where they're looking at like a radar. Uh, there's an issue yeah. uh, where at the at the very end when you see uh, everybody who's dead in New York after the squid attack, um, you know, like the blood coming down the clock. Um, it's, it's such a well-designed, I mean, 33 years later, what a beautifully designed package, uh, that still, you know, stands the test of time, uh, compared to modern day comics. The thing I think is the, um, the absolute, this, the thing that makes this the best, and I know you're probably going to say this might make it the worst is all of the filler content. So you've got the regular issue and then you have these side pieces that are they're not comics at all yeah and they are like moby dick where in moby dick herman melville decides to spend you know an, a chapter just talking about here is how you segment a whale and here's actually how you extract the spermaceti from its head yeah and then here is about this tribe and their culture and each kind of intermediary issue is some tangential but unnecessary storyline like hollis's uh, autobiography or mm-hmm. the tale of the black pirate or whatever. black freighter black yeah freighter yeah um which obviously has some more allegorical value mm-hmm. or the discussion of like owls yeah i love that stuff because I, what it shows me yeah other than i just find that kind of stuff fun and enjoyable is how much the creator cares about the about, world yes just building a good universe I, I i don't i don't disagree with you i don't hate that stuff uh the owl chapter is still the toughest to get through and any watchman fan will tell you that because it's really dull but the rest of it is such a wonderful rich part of the part of the world in fact when i was rereading the book when i first got it when i had those single issues i would sometimes just skip forward to under the hood the yeah. the hollis mason um like autobiography of his adventures uh, as the original Night Owl and with the Minutemen. I like I love that stuff. I ate it up. That's not the worst for me. I have a different worst. Well, what's the worst for me? It's uh, there's parts of the book that haven't aged well, and it's it's something problematic I've seen in some of Alan Moore's writing. You've seen in the Killing Joke for sure when um, the Joker uh, assaults Barbara Gordon 
and um, the subtext is that he raped her. Yeah. Um, in Watchmen, um, the comedian attempts to rape uh, Sally Jupiter, the, Silk, the original Silk Spectre. Um, and then you later find out they uh, actually have a romantic tryst, and uh, the product of that is uh, is uh, her daughter, um, the second Silk Spectre. Um, what's her What's her name? It's um, something Jupiter. J- J- Jessica Perkins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and to me, I, I just think, one, I am tired of rape as a storytelling device. Um, it bothered me when I was much younger. It b- bothers me even more now. And I, I just think um, taking the person who was the victim of sexual assault and then she ends up uh, in a weird way reconciling with him and has um, the way she described it as a tender moment. It just seemed, I, I don't know, it just seemed very straight male uh, the way he wrote it. And it, it just, that just really bugged me there, it sticks out there's a lot. probably too much sweetness there's probably too much forgiveness yeah. um on the part of sally's character yeah however i do think laurel is the daughter's name laurel yeah the thing i don't Lori. yeah I, i'm okay a little bit with it maybe only because i'm not as familiar seeing this as like such a common trope where a guy is this kind of lascivious character and then he ultimately wins the woman over um, and it actually kind of like works out. I think that usually those kind of dog roll type people are they're, they're never they never achieve the level of like I'm going are actually in the process of raping someone and then they win them over. In this case, to me, the thing I, I kind of like about that was how it could show the extreme of human complexity that there are human beings who can or will try to overlook these kinds of things and ultimately change their views for the time period i think it's more appropriate than for our current sensibilities yeah i also think that like this is probably not the best example to show our complexities as human beings there's probably other ways you could do it i think the end goals was to show that Eddie Blake was an amoral character that did not belong with the Minutemen, yeah. right? They needed to kick him out for some reason. And then he needed to go on to be become a tool of the U.S. government from the South Pacific during World War II uh, to Vietnam um, and, and all, everything in between. Uh, I don't think him raping Sally Jupiter needed to be the catalyst to get him out. Like, you could have had anything where the, he assaulted any one of them or uh, ended up doing something like, you know, stealing something like an I don't admission. Think that's true. Because I think that you need um, uh, Silk Spectre 2 to hate him. And it has to be something that he's done to her mother yeah. for her to truly dislike him so that the reveal that he is the, his daughter by consent is a thing that she has to ultimately grapple with. Yeah, maybe. I It still doesn't sit right well with me, but it's... I mean, it's a pretty major flaw from my perspective. Yeah. But it's one of the few things that I can say that I didn't really care for in the book. Um, everything else, um, I think, sort of fits in... fits in pretty well, especially considering it was written and published in 1986. 
Yeah, I think if I had to pick a worst thing other than that kind of feature is that while I love, I love those kind of weird middle segues. If I was a person who was like reading this as issues or experiencing for the first time or wasn't familiar with that kind of storytelling structure of throwing random things in. Like the pirate It would just be fucking annoying. I mean, that would just be an irritating thing to do. Like, how far are you going to go for a parable about a guy like, you know, desolate and wasted against a world that hates him? Like, it's unnecessary. It really, you could do the entire book without it. You could do the entire book without that stupid stupid, uh, newsstand guy and his friend. Yeah. Uh, who only got like a hat tip in the movie, um, but well, that part, that part, it's if I was editing it, I'd go. This is filler. This is unnecessary. I disagree with that. Um, I, um, well, I didn't love those characters of the newsstand guy. It's it shows, it provides a perspective of um real people within this universe because everybody else is either a superhero or former superhero or related to a superhero. Yeah. These are like everyday people uh, who had no interaction. Everyday people <laughs> who had no interaction with uh, uh, with with this extra normal paranormal part of part of this world. Yeah. The pirate comic, you know, at first I was like, yeah, this is it's tedious to read. It's still a little tedious to read. What I really like about it is the whole story is of a guy who is really worried about like this black freighter this like demonic ship that's going to rape and pillage uh this this town. Can I just say if you're listening to this yeah. and you hated these parts of the book? Yeah. And you thought that was a waste of time? That's exactly what we're talking about right fucking now. Fuck you. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> um <laughs> Oh, that's ironic. Uh but the fact that he had to like try he had to try to run uh, outrun this this demonic type of pirate ship uh, to come and save the town. Right. And then he miscalculates and he thinks, oh my God, the world is already overrun or this town is already overrun by everybody who has, has uh, 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 by, by, by this pirate ship and he's got to kill off these people. Right. And then he realizes his mistake and it's like the ship hasn't come yet. And then he goes out to go join it. The parable to me is what Ozymandias does at the end of the book. And it doesn't quite answer the question. It just poses it. Is did Ozymandias save the world from from itself or did he actually doom it even further? Yeah, I mean, obviously that's a big question, which is... It's looming. It's, it's left unanswered. It's left I, unanswered. I think that, I think that it, let's, let's talk about this kind of like the world and the plot a little bit. And I think there's there's something interesting about a lot of the characters that there's this kind of prescience for a lot of modern male culture that's brought up. So like incels, white supremacy, right? Male uh, uh, meninists, um, <clears throat> the people who are male, male feminists, yeah, but not fem- They're not feminists. They're masculinists. Masculinists. I can't yeah. remember the proper term. Yeah. Is. But Men, they're men's, men's rights, rights. Ac- activists. Yeah. yeah. That if you look at a lot of these characters, 
you can see a lot of through lines that different groups of people are holding. Yeah. So like Rorschach has this kind of incel type puritanism yeah. where he is extraordinarily angry at an impure world. He hates the whores. He hates all the people who have strayed, you know, not from the light of God, but from the right way of doing things. Right. Um, <clears throat> Dr. Manhattan has this kind of objectivist, like I can see the world as it truly is. Um, it, what am I to interfere with the affairs of others? Right. Mentality. Um, <clears throat> Night Owl has this kind of um, cuckish impotence. He's a person who the world has dicked over. Right. He's a now, beta male. He's yeah. a beta male who's who's a complete schlub. Um, and Ozymandias is a kind of a Chad. He is like this like ultra male who has it all. He has everything and nothing's really bothering him. Everything's perfect. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what do you think of the prescience of that? Do you think it's what do you think it's related to? What do you think it says about the nature of superheroes? Wow. Uh, you know, I never really thought about it that way, but God, you're right. Um, God, this is a fucking smart book. Um, absolutely. I think Alan Moore is completely dissecting the uh, uh, the inherent discrepancy of superheroes or of the ironic nature of superheroes. These These people who are meant to be protectors of good and you know all that is right in the world but they're really protectors of the status quo and the status quo in 1986 uh, even in this world which is a parallel world is to keep uh straight white men in power yeah uh and you have these different examples of that uh as the as the various representatives as, as you described well so i i don't know because i think i mean if you think about think about um um Silk Spectre's costume, both the original and 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 the and the daughter, um, it's very exploitative, you know. Whereas like the male characters are, you know, like they use more armor. They use what about Doctor Manhattan and the fact that uh, a lot of the male characters, the way you see their costumes is them kind of as schlubs. Like <clears throat> there are fit ones, the younger yeah. ones, but they very clearly show that as you age a little bit, you age a lot. And so, like Doctor or Captain Metropolis. Or oh, whatever, he gets the paunch. He gets yeah. his paunch, and he's like kind of like desperately trying to hold on to his hair. And, right. Uh, I I think that what the reason why it still rings true today is that Alan Moore is pointing out not uh, power uh, itself, but the way people perceive power. So, like. We the 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 problem with comic books is that we like to think we're good people and that if we had that power, we would be a good person. Right. It's like the boys. Right. Like <clears throat> that. What really would happen is the things that make us petty. The darkest parts about us mm -hmm. are the things that would get reflected in our use of power. Right. So if you really thought you had a righteous moral goal like Rorschach does, you would do anything no matter what to try and stop it. Like if you supposed that Ozymandias or Ozymandias was right, Rorschach, because of his conviction, mm -hmm. would have fucked it up. Yeah. He would have done the absolutely wrong thing and his character couldn't let him do otherwise. Right. 
Which is why he allows Dr. Manhattan to kill him Yeah, at the very end. To me, it seems like the kind of thing that, you know, what if you gave the weakest of men power? You know, it's no accident that Richard Nixon is still president in this book. Alan Moore is so fucking smart by having that. Um, And it makes sense from a... You know, like the diverging point in this in this universe uh, beyond just, you know, people dressing up as superheroes and superhero comics going out of fashion is the um, is the appearance of Dr. Manhattan. Yeah. Who's a game changer in every which way from the way we get power, um, you know, to power our electronic devices and cars and things like that to completely changing the outcome of the Vietnam War. And there was one little moment that I didn't pick up on the first several times I read this, but I, I did on this uh, last reread, was uh, Nixon had Congress uh, uh, and the state legislatures ratify right. the Constitution. A third term. A third term, which is why, like, w- what was the constitutional amendment that uh, uh, limited uh, presidents only two terms? Uh, it was like 21st or 20... Oh. Maybe 21st a little bit. Is, is prohibition. Oh, it's prohibition. So maybe like 24th, 25th. It's yeah. not 25th. 24th, 26th, something like that. Um, and it was done after FDR, yeah. so in the 50s. Um, but uh, um, he was so popular uh, having won Vietnam as a result of Dr. Manhattan. But you talk about a small, petty man like Richard Nixon and somebody who believed that he was entitled to this power and he is power unchecked. Because when you found out about Watergate in our world, uh, he basically said, I'm the president I'm above the law. What I, I do can't be illegal because right. I'm the president. And it's so cur- it's it's so fucking smart because it's so current right now because we're going through a very similar thing where you have we have a president who has clearly broken the law and broken his oath to the constitution uh, and believes that he can because one he doesn't really understand what the law is and two he believes that being president means being king. Don't you love that line from the comedian? Uh, after two months of Dr. Manhattan in Vietnam, he said they've won, and the comedian says, "Yeah, we fucking won the war." Can you imagine how sane, insane it would be? How pe- how insane people would go if we didn't? Yeah, and it kind of creates this kind of like, okay, so we've talked a lot, you know, as human beings about what if we're on the darkest timeline? Yeah, Donald Trump has won. But no matter what world we, the, the suggestion there is that no matter what world we would have gone into, yeah, it's not. It is. It is the idea of the less the road, the path less taken. Right. That we, they're actually the same. We think it would have been different, but they look about the same as far as uh, you know a, a divided perspective might be. So uh, I don't know if you've been reading anything about the TV show, and I know we're going to get into that a little bit about what we want to see, hope to see out of the the show that premieres uh, tomorrow. Um, but, uh, one of the themes that Damon Lindelof wants to, um, wants to explore is white nationalism, yeah, which is really big right now. Um, and he says that, um, Ta-Nehisi Coates's, uh, um, essay about, uh, in the Atlantic about reparations really changed him and made him think about, uh, his privilege. And he talked about the Tulsa massacre, massacre in 1921, and the destruction of the Black Wall Street. And yeah. It's like, and he's like, I don't even know what that was until I read this from Ta-Nehisi Coates. And so that becomes, uh, in the show... That is uh, a really, it is a really fucked up history. It's a fucked up history. And that becomes one of the the, the points where the show is, is supposed to begin with. Yeah. Um, um, and so how Alan Moore 
used Watchmen to talk about the fear of uh, of uh, nuclear warfare between these two superpowers. Uh, Lindelof wants to use his version of Watchmen, the sequel. So smart. To talk about what we are really afraid of right now as people. Love it. Uh, and it's uh, it makes me so excited for the show. So um, some early suggestions from it uh, are that we're going to see Jeremy Irons perhaps as an older... Ozymandias. Ozymandias. And, and Gene Smart. As, as an older uh, Jupiter. Silk, Silk Spectre too. Yeah. Junus... Junus? Uh, it's a Polish last name, and I'm yes. going to mispronounce it. Jusipek? Just what was the reason for them hiding the Polishness? Uh, it's Why? because it was the 1930s and 40s, and um, uh, her agent, who she ends up marrying, Sally Jupiter, the older woman, um, uh, the agent basically says that you will become more famous if you change your name to a much more an easier to pronounce and a less Polish name. Oh yeah. I mean, like, I, I mean, you remember, like, I mean, Polish people. There was a lot of race of racism against them. Yeah. I mean, that's like the whole. I remember Polish jokes being told like up into the eighties as like a uh, like as like a pretty common joke. All right. So this is a weird thing. Yeah. Uh, if you look in, uh, I, I wish I could remember these. There's there's these uh, two comedic biographers, not biographers, historians. They point out that. Uh, only the U.S. really has lawyer jokes, yeah, because we have so many lawyers and we're a really litigious society. Yeah, every country has Polish jokes. It's crazy. It's very bizarre. That's very nuts. And it's odd that they picked that country, but whatever. I, yeah, I don't get it either. So, so we're gonna have lots of white supremacist themes. Yeah, the Minutemen are, uh, or whatever they're gonna be called. Uh, they're, it's like basically, uh, they're in, invoking like a KKK, like sort of like splinter group, like the Knights of something. And they're in the show you're talking about, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, they're, they all wear Rorschach masks. Um, so like he's their, like sort of their, he's their inspiration. How dark is that, that he was a person who would be completely opposed to this kind of, um, uh, of, of the idea that the world believes there's an outside threat then the outside threat is made apparent by Ozymandias. Then his image is used to perhaps continue that defense. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's fucked up. Um, some of the other themes in the actual book, you know, do the ends justify the means? It's a question that is not answered in the book, and they may start answering it a little bit in the show. Uh, but um, it's one. the last scene of the graphic novel is... Rorschach's journal that he put in the mailbox to go to the New Frontiersman, which is the the right wing publication, which is like you know like a mix between the National Enquirer and you know Breitbart, um, uh, and the intern or whatever ends up you know um, uh, like rummaging through like the inbox, and because the world has become this sort of like liberal paradise, according to Ozymandias, because the world is coming together after the squid attack. Uh, the sales for the new frontiersmen are down. The publication rates for the new frontier frontiersmen are down, and so the guy, the publisher, is like, "Yeah, publish whatever the fuck you want. I don't, I don't really care." And he like goes to reach for Rorschach's don't uh, you, journal. Do you? Okay, so do you do you actually think the Watchmen, the comic, is is so ambiguous about how this uh, the ends justifying the means? Because I don't think I think it I think it firmly stands in no because to believe the ends justified the means 
assumes you have perfect people who behave perfectly. And the idea of who watches the watchman is that people are going to deviate from what are the normal rules or what are the norm, what's the normal expectation that no matter what you do, you are going to fall into chaos. And the only people who could, who could possibly see how things are going to come out mm-hmm. are going to be the kind of people who seeing how everything comes out, know that they can't really do anything to change it. Like Dr. Manhattan. So, um, then the question, question, answer your question, um, is, do you see, is Ozymandias the hero or the villain of, of the graphic novel? He is definitively the villain. I mean, I think he's a villain, but I think that, you know, part of the story is that we all have these very villainous traits about us. Yeah. There's no world in which you could see Rorschach as being a real hero. Right. Uh, he does a few things that are right. And also lots of fucking things that are wrong. He went on a 15 day bender of breaking people's arms, uh, shoving knuckles into, you know, hands, uh, in order to get some information. Right. So I, I think that, you know, no one, no one's a hero in this story, but Ozymandias is definitely the villain, definitively a villain. Uh, That is the guy who believes he is going to order things and there isn't order. Um, yeah, I think of him as sort of a miss. He's like a Magneto type. He's like an anti-hero yeah. almost. He's a misunderstood villain um, who is trying to do. He ends up um, doing bad to attempt to do good all by himself. All by himself. Um, and the book does a really good job of having him be this like very like uh, seeming seemingly very benevolent person. And so when you see the reveal, it's like holy shit. The movie, which uh, I want to talk about for a second, which is so problematic that it made me not want to read the book for like 10 years. Yeah. Like I rereading it now just before this podcast. Um, it's the first time I picked up this book since like 2009 yeah. or 2008. Um, Zack Snyder like basically like aped every image and scene from the book. And he completely missed the point. Yeah, we've talked about this a lot before that he doesn't understand the difference between a moment and a scene. Right. What is the thing that builds to something versus what does the thing look like at the end? Well, the actor he has playing Ozymandias, who's actually a very good actor, a very handsome British actor, um, has has uh, he plays Adrian Veidt like as so alien and aloof um, that you're like. Even if you hadn't read the book, like, no, oh, yeah, that's the bad guy. He seems really suspicious from the beginning. Very suspicious. And the whole point was, like, you've got to make Adrian Veet seem like he's a he's a good dude, you know? like You he's need to go- make him seem like he's Steve Rogers. Yeah. He needs to be really charming and feel sincere. Yeah. I'm very excited about the Jeremy Irons, like, casting. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I think that's going to be really, really smart. Um, if we can talk about, in the last couple minutes, um, more things we'd like to see from the show. So. Yeah. Uh, one thing I forgot in the comics was that Hooded Justice was never seen from again. Yeah. And he just kind of disappeared at some point after the Keen Act was enacted. Right. We have seen, uh, as part of the trailers, uh, images of Hooded Justice or maybe Hooded Justice 2. Do you think that they're going to continue that the, the gay themes there? Or what do you think they might do with that? So the Hood of Justice in this world, he is the first uh, known superhero. He's the first one that showed up on the scene. 
uh, before Night Owl, before Slick Spectre, before Captain Metropolis, Dollar Bill, all those characters. Um, so since you're asking this question, I want to talk a little bit about the prequel series that I read. I don't think you did before no. Watchmen. I finally broke down and read them. I didn't want to. Uh, I was like, let me see like if they add anything to this world. And they don't. What they do is they take everything that's sort of... Uh, implied or given you know made into subtext they make it in a text which i don't think is necessary um no. the subtext is that hooded justice and captain metropolis had a gay affair and they just sort of hint at it um and uh uh silk specter uh was his beard was the hooded justice's beard like they never really had a I sexual see, yeah. relationship they make it explicit in the before watchmen miniseries and then they make it explicit that com- the comedian kills the hooded justice uh, oh yeah, uh, and like he like like after the Keen Act, he's he is murdered, uh, by by oh. Eddie Blake. So like Gross. it just it just it just gives you like too much. Like I'm mad that I read them. That's I'm like annoying. I'm really I'm really upset at myself for I'm reading glad them. I'm not reading that. Yeah. Um, what a bunch of noise. The only one that I I would say is actually decent is the Minutemen one, and mostly because it's the art. Darwin Cook is a phenomenal artist, and he's a decent enough writer, and he does it in a style that makes sense for that era, like the so, 1940s and 50s. Do you think that we're going to get any game th- gay themes in this, or do you think it's going to be like very subtle? Uh, is there going to be a return of Hooded Justice? Because I actually kind of, I mean, he was, maybe he's one of those characters that we go, you know, I the writer writes this complicated, rich character, and then they've got some gremlin in the background, and everyone's like, that's my favorite character. <laughs> like, Hooded Justice, we got to see him a little bit, and yeah. we got to see that he has a very strong moral compass Yeah, that might still be a little bit misguided because he does have that part after Silk Spectre's been sexually assaulted that he goes, clean yourself up. Yeah, that and also he was very sympathetic to um, Third Reich before Pearl Harbor. Uh, there, there, that uh, Hollis Mason says that in one of the chapters oh, of Under right. the Hood. Yeah. So, I mean, the guy is a Nazi sympathizer, so do, not do, a good dude. Do you think that there will be, or what? What do you hope for as far as? Do you could I could take it or leave it? Gay themes in the story, if there are just if there are just gay characters. Yeah, I think there will be. There, like, it's an HBO show in 2019. There's going to be gay characters. Like, it would be weird for there not to be. Um, as far as like whether it's the Hood of Justice or whatever, it's not gay TV. It's <laughs> HBO. <laughs> um, so in the show, the heroes or the superheroes are basically cops who are trying to protect themselves uh, from being known because they're being assaulted by these uh, by these uh, the knights of whatever, like the the Rorschach, Ren. Uh, the knights yeah. of Ren. Um, and so um, they could, uh, like, Regina King is playing a character called, like, Sister Midnight, I believe. And um, that's, like, a completely new character. Yeah. But they are definitely evoking, like, certain characters. There's, like, one that I think you pointed out off podcast of a guy who's got, like, a, a mirror mask. Oh, I love that mirror mask so much. Which is the opposite of a Rorschach mask. Right, because in a Rorschach what you're doing is looking into the image to try and learn something about yourself. Yeah. But the mirror mask is reflecting the world as the mask portrays it. Yeah. A very smart uh, inversion. And then you could see a, uh, a version of the hooded justice, somebody who's paying homage to, uh, to like the very first superhero to show up. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Um, I, I've read enough about it that I feel like I've spoiled myself a little bit too much. But I'm also very excited about where the show is going to go. What else? What else do you want to see in the show? 
Uh, I, I honestly, um, so they've done, they've made a lot of do about uh, Night Owl's ship crashing. Yeah. It's in every trailer. I hope that's a thing that's dispensed of relatively quickly. Yeah. So it's not a thing that hangs over later as a plot point because right. we've seen it. But otherwise, I think that the only, that the most important thing is that they capture this feeling of, I uh, of people who view themselves as being the right person with power. Right. And the answer is none of them are going to get it right. And the people who are going to get it the most wrong are the people who are going to double down when they get it wrong. Right. Uh, I'm really hoping for, um, I want this to be a very political show, which it will be, but I want some real moral ambiguity yeah. about it as well. Uh, I think Lindelof is a very smart creator I think he got a lot of flack for the end of Lost. Some of it deserved, some of it not. But The Leftovers, I think, is one of the best shows of the last 10 years. Look, uh, I mean, he is in a position, the perfect position, given his record, to have a show with lots of ambiguity. Yeah. Which is exactly what The Watchmen needs. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it. Uh, we're going to review it uh, every week right. as it comes out. Uh, we hope you guys listen. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, this has been uh, Homo Superior. Three-er. Er.